If you will, take your Bibles and join me back in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Again, if you're watching us on live stream, I just want to say to you one more time, let us know that you're, you're there by uh, saying hello, give us an amen, uh, an emoji. Uh, and again, if you believe in what we're teaching and preaching, uh, the one lesson that I'm learning from the live stream, uh, I, I'm grateful for it. I, I'm, I'm more grateful to be live and in person. This is so much better. Uh, but um, we've, we are being given a moment in time that unlike any that we've had in the past. And that is um, more and more people are tuning in to hear preaching on live stream than probably at any other time that this technology has been available to us. And so, again, if you believe in what we're teaching and preaching, and those of you that are here today, uh, this is archived on the Facebook page. And if, and if you believe in it, um, then uh, make sure that you share it and repost it uh, to your page as well. Again, it's just another, I mean, think about it this way. As I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, how important it, it, it is for the body of Christ to, to gather together. And no doubt, uh, this pandemic, uh, I believe, in some, de in some degree is a ploy of the enemy uh, to uh, hurt the church. Everything that he does uh, is aimed at hurting the spread of the gospel and is, and is aimed at hurting the fellowship of the church by keeping us apart, by keeping us spread out. Uh, but um, we're back gathered together now, uh, at least not all of us, but uh, a good many of us, and one day we'll all be back together. But in the midst of all of that, the good that I see in it is that um, church on Facebook has become a means by which people are uh, ducking in and checking out churches and uh, kind of going back to church without having to go to church. And so it's definitely a, a, a wonderful opportunity for us uh, to, further the spread, to further the spread of the gospel uh, through this means that we have at our disposal. And so um, I just want to encourage you, let's, let's take advantage of it, right? I mean, I feel like we've been taking advantage of uh, over the last six months by having to social distance from each other and be locked up in our houses away from each other. And so um, let, let's turn this bad situation into something that's, uh, that's good. And, and not just good, but that, is, uh, but that will uh, further push the gospel to where the gospel uh, has yet to go. Romans chapter 12. We started at verse 9 last week. We made it through the first half of verse 9. Today we're going to pick up with the last half of verse 9. But before we get to that, let's, let's do a quick review of last week. Because remember, this Romans 12 is nothing but uh, one verse building off another verse. Building, It's not a mathematical equation. I don't, I don't want you to think that it's mathematical in that sense. Because if we do that, then we, we get into this mechanical way of thinking. And that's not the way we should think about this either. But what it is, so let me go back to that word that I used a couple of weeks ago. It's a flow. This happens, and then we flow into this because of what's happened previous. The word therefore is a key word in the book of Romans. And remember what therefore does. There's five therefores in the book of Romans. And all five of those therefore are connecting that what's about to happen to what's already happened. And so the therefore that began in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is the connection all the way back to the previous 11 chapters. Okay, so we have seen, we have seen redemption spelled out for us in 11 chapters. And then remember what Paul says. He says, therefore, why? Because of the mercies of God. And so this life that we're, this practice that we're about to be called into this lifestyle that we're about to enter into is, is, is happening because we have experienced the mercies of God, which Paul took 11 chapters to explain to us. So last week I entitled the sermon, 
here's what love is. Remember we talked about the hit song from the 1980s? Uh, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. So our answer to that was last week's sermon. Here's what love is. Okay? Paul is showing us what love is. And so today is part two of here's what love is. British journalist James Bartholomew observed a trend in modern Western culture and coined a new English term. His term, I'll see if maybe if any of you have heard of this, it's called virtue signaling. Okay, a few people are nodding. Yeah, I've heard of virtue signaling. Signaling. So what is that for the rest of us who have never heard of this term virtue sig- signaling? Well, I'm going to define it by giving us an illustration. Il- an illustration. I don't know why I'm so tongue-tied this morning. <clears throat> I recently saw a, fo- uh, a post, a post, wow, a post on Facebook. I promise I didn't drink before I came to church anything but mushroom coffee. And maybe that's it. Maybe I overdid the mushrooms this morning. Uh, I recently saw a Facebook post about feeding the homeless, which received 10,000, over 10,000 likes. And this is what the post said. It's so very satisfying to be making a difference in people's lives. That's virtue signaling. When companies advertise their support for the environment or homelessness to convince you to buy their product, they are virtue signaling. Probably the most obvious virtue signaling commercial on TV right now is Bombas. Have y'all seen Bombas? The socks. Right. So what do they, how do they start out their commercial? They start out their commercial. They've made the greatest sock that's ever been made, right? And that the most requested item at homeless shelters is socks. Technically, they're, they're wrong. Uh, it's the second most requested. The most requested, and the only reason why I know this is because I, we did a mission trip to Toronto, Canada. Actually, it was in a town called Mississauga, Canada, and we worked with a uh, a homeless shelter there, and the guy said, by far, the number one item requested is underwear. But, you know, we're not going to pick the commercial apart over that. It It is one of the two most requested items in homeless shelters. And so Bombas says, hey, guess what? Buy our socks, and we'll give a pair of these black socks. Don't look, it's a totally different look sock. We're, and the only people that can have these socks are the homeless people. So they're going to get this unique Bomba sock. That is virtue signaling. You say, what? Okay, so how does this, what's this have to do with the Bible? Well, we're getting there. When people wear wristbands proclaiming their awareness of cancer, plaster their bumpers with stickers decrying everything from inequality to bullying or participate in an ice bucket challenge, That's all virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is a way to make yourself feel good and look good without doing any good. We will soon celebrate the king of virtue, uh, the, the king of the virtue signaling holidays. It's coming up. It's in February on the 14th. It's called Valentine's Day. How much easier it is to buy a box of chocolate or a dozen roses than it is actually to sit down and listen to your spouse or do some chores around the house. Y'all getting a better picture of what virtue signaling is? It is a shallow excuse for not showing real care, compassion, or love. We live in a world of empty of empty expressions of love. So we need our Lord and Savior through the Apostle Paul to tell us, hey, listen, this is what love really looks like. Last week, we studied the definition of love. Paul uses, remember, he's he's about to use a series of participles. Okay? Do you remember how I told you to, you know, participle, who wants to go back to English class? Participle is simply what? A verb with 
in action or instructions. That's it. So he uses these participles to paint for us a portrait of love. He begins his portrait by telling us that love must be what? It's right there in verse 9. It's what we looked at last week. It must be genuine or, a.k.a., without hypocrisy. Or NIV says sincere. In other words, when God looks for love, guess what? This is bad news and good news. He looks at our hearts. He's not looking at our action. He's looking at our heart. Genuine love flows in two directions. Okay, It first flows vertically. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, right? Matthew 22, Mark 12 says that. And then secondly, after vertical love has been engaged, and listen, this two-way flow flows really in one way. It's got to flow vertical before it can flow horizontal. There's no way you're going to be able to love your neighbor as yourself if you're not loving God with all of your heart. Why? Because if you don't love God with all your heart, you can't love yourself rightly. And the love that you will love yourself rightly will be wrong. Right? It's going to be, it's going to be selfish. It's going to be self-centered. God knows when our kindness is little more than a cover for a bitter, jealous, greedy heart. And let's just all get on the same page this morning and say, that's my heart a lot, if not most of the time. God knows if we do things for others, even though we would rather not. Whew. That's tough. Why? I mean, just, just I mean, look, if you sat down and, and, and you know, made a list this morning and drew a line down the middle of a piece of, you know, uh, of the paper and put genuine versus phony and, and, and then started cataloging all of your acts of so-called love over the last 30 days, how many go in the phony category and how many get over in the genuine category? God demands that we love Him and love others with a genuine, sincere perfect love so it's self-examination time i told you last week it's going to be tough these are going to be some big old hard pills to swallow if we are honest we must confess that we have not not love as god demands and even the best we can do is tainted by sin the perfect law of god reveals that if our salvation depends on our love what we're doomed. <laughs> We're doomed. But here's the good news. Just look, it's right there on the screen. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me remind us of this important truth. When we were unlovable, wretched, and rebellious enemies of God, He loved us. He didn't just tell us about His love. He proved it by sending Jesus to live. Just remember this. Jesus just didn't die for your sin. He lived the life you should have lived to begin with. So he first lives the life that we're called to live perfectly, and then he dies the death that we should have died, the death of a sinner. If you want to see genuine love, you've got to look at Christ. He did not just talk about helping those in need. He actually rebuked the proud, and he comforted the hurting, right? He fed the hungry, he gave sight to the blind, and life to the, and life to the dead. When his enemies showed their hatred by beating and nailing him to the cross, what did Christ do? Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. And then Jesus performed the greatest act of love in human history. He laid down his life to pay for their sins. 
of not just his friends, but his enemies as well. Through faith, our lovelessness is covered by his perfect life of love. That is genuine love from our God, whose very essence, according to 1 John 4, 6, is love. Only when our faith is firmly fixed on God's perfect, genuine love for us, will we be ready to answer Paul's question, what does genuine love look like in our own lives? Genu- Listen, genuine love is just not being nice to people. <laughs> genuine love has a moral orientation towards the good. All right, now it's, 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 it's about to get really heavy here for a second. Okay, Th- this is going to hurt more than you can imagine. But listen, if we're going to take that next step of faith, if we're going to take that next progression in spiritual growth, this is necessary. Genuine love has a moral orientation towards the good. When we show love towards someone, we are moving them towards God's goodness. Genuine love is not being nice to people by catering to their specific likes or their dislikes. Genuine love, listen, this is key this morning. Genuine love is acting in a way that helps them to experience more of God's goodness. You want me to say that to you one more time? Because you need, if you don't get anything else, you need to get that one statement. Genuine love is acting in a way that helps them to experience more of God's goodness. Why do you think Jesus loved you when you were his enemy? He's loving you to do what? Towards experiencing more of God's goodness. Listen, everybody experiences, whether they are Christian or non-Christian, every person experiences some level of God's goodness, right? We call it common what? Grace. Common grace. The goodness of God towards undeserving sinners. Every person experiences that. That's why the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. It's common grace. But listen, God wants people to experience more than His common grace because common grace will not save you. Only saving grace will save you. And so God has brought into existence this institution called the church and this group of people called Christians, and their job is to love this world towards experiencing more of God's goodness, in particular, His saving grace. So look with me this morning at the last half of verse 9, and let's see the opening strokes of Paul's picture concerning what here's what love is. Let love be genuine. That's what we just looked at. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So two simple points this morning. I'm going to put them together in one statement, then break it out. Here's the two points in one statement. Genuine love hates evil and holds fast to what is good. That's the big statement here. That's what the word abhor means. It means to hate. And some of us have taught our children, don't you ever say you Hey, listen, that word is appropriate in certain occasions, and especially in this occasion in the Scripture, that genuine love hates evil and holds fast to good. So let's let's take a look at the first half of that statement. Genuine love hates evil. Genuine love, love without hypocrisy, hypocrisy demonstrates itself By hating what is evil. Listen, biblical love never endorses, aligns itself, or encourages attitudes or behaviors that are evil. Paul tells the Philippians, in Philippians 1-9, look at this verse on the screen. And And it is my prayer that, watch, your love may, what? Abound more and more with what? He wants love to have what? Knowledge and what? 
discernment. Remember our altar binding verbs back in verse 2 of chapter 12? Do not conform to this world. Listen, we discovered the depth of our worldly conformity by our intensity of our, of our hatred for the world. Now listen, when I'm talking about the world, I'm not talking about, you know, the, 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 the planet. The world in biblical sense, in this sense anyway, is the, is the word pertaining to the, the ideologies of the world, okay? Not the cosmos, not the world itself, but the, the world's way of thinking, the ideologies that come from sinfulness. That's what we're talking about. So, you know, we're not talking about people. We're talking about ideas, okay, that, that pervade our society. Unfortunately, familiarity, which is myself included, this is, this is what gets, gets us. With our familiarity with a, with a culture that is shaped by the forces of Satan has ground many a believer, even ourselves in this room, into a state of general tolerance for whatever deviant behavior is in vogue at present. Right? It's easy to get caught up in that. It's, it's easy to grow familiar with certain aspects of life that are, are, are evil and just be okay with that. I remember years ago, I watched this movie that, that came out. It was a faith-based movie. And it was, it was kind of like a spin of Back to the Future in a way. And basically what had happened is they had a guy from, uh, a, a Christian believer from the 1600s. Uh, he was a Puritan. And if you don't know anything about the Puritans, their name describes them. They were all about purity. Uh, they, they had the highest uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, thoughts when it when it when it comes to purity that probably any other group of people have ever had uh, in America. And so this Puritan believer somehow he gets transported to the 20th century, and he is just blown away by what he sees. Now, what he's blown away by is that he ends up, I'm, I'm just really condensing this down, he ends up in this home of people that are Christians, modern-day 20th century Christians. And he is just absolutely astounded at what they participate in, at what they watch, at what they listen to. Now, stay with me for a second. Don't check out and think I'm going into some kind of legalism here in a second I, I i'm going somewhere but don't do like what most people do and and that is just read a headline and think you know what's coming next without reading the story okay stay with the story here and what he was amazed at was that these people seemed to have no hatred towards evil that they were complicit participants in the evil of this present world we are to hate evil because it is the... Listen, here's the reason that we are to hate. Well, just not the reason. It's a reason why we should hate evil. It is the enemy of all that leads to Christ-likeness. It is the enemy that, of all that leads to Christ-likeness. The proper Christian response to evil is simply not to avoid it, but to be repelled by it. So let's be honest for a moment. We are often disgusted by evil, but we rarely hate evil. Adjectives, back to an English lesson, okay? Adjectives, what do they do? They just des describe, right? That's all they are. They're descriptive. That's all they do. They just describe something. Adjectives such as disgusted just describe how we feel about evil. Verbs such as hate act because it is hardwired into every verb to act. I give you, let me give you another example. So, um, so it's been over a year ago. Um, I drive by this place 
uh, in downtown Birmingham, or this particular lot in downtown Birmingham, on my way to pick up chemical for our company. And I noticed one day they started clearing out this area, and they were getting ready to do some construction work. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what they're going to build right here. So as it kept going up, and the building became, you know, became more and more evident, and I thought, I know exactly what that, I mean, they hadn't even put any signage out, and I said, I know exactly what that building is. That's an abortion clinic. That's a Planned Parenthood building. And my heart just sunk, and I said, you know what, I hope I'm wrong. As time went on, sure enough, the fence was put up, and I knew when they put the fence up with a security gate, I knew then, I was like, it's an abortion clinic. Then before long, the signage was put up, Planned Parenthood. And it was, it, was, it was just sickening to think that here, right here in Birmingham, Alabama, is a brand new abortion clinic. Listen, and they didn't build it in Hoover, and they didn't build it in Vestavia Hills, and they didn't build it in all the other rich areas of Birmingham, the area that I'm talking about that I travel through is a low-income area, which are the people that abortion clinic... I'm not saying rich people don't get abortions. They do. But listen, the vast majority of people that get abortions are coming out of situations where it is economically hard and there's a lot of other factors that are going on. And so I thought to myself, I said, I wonder how long it's going to take before protests start, picketers, you know, are the pro-life people going to show up? Should have been asking myself, when are you going to show up? But I thought, when, when, are, when, when are people going to start standing out front? And this past week, I had to make a trip to Birmingham to pick up supplies, and guess what I, guess what I saw? About 12 people standing outside, not with their signs that say, women that have abortions go to hell, but signs that says, it's a life, let us help. Signs that were, Jesus loves you, and he loves the baby, and we do too, let us help. Those people were there because they hate the evil of abortion. But they don't hate the women that are coming there to have the abortion. And as a side note, I, I thought it was very interesting, too, that when the uh, protests started back in the late spring and the Black Lives Movement became very uh, uh, forefront in our culture, that I went by one day, and there was a banner. I took a picture of it. I don't mind showing it to you. And on the banner, they hung out on the fence. It said, Black Lives Matter. I, wanna, I just want to be honest with everybody in here and, and watching on Facebook. Do your research. Planned Parenthood was started by Margaret Sanger. She was a vowed racist. She wanted to exterminate the African-American race. And still to this day, more black children are aborted at Planned Parenthood than any other abortion clinic anywhere. They don't care about black lives. They don't care about life at all. That's evil. It's one thing for me to drive by See, I'm preaching to myself now. It's one thing for me to drive by and be disgusted that it's there and to have a sickening feeling in the pit of my stomach. It's a whole nother thing to hate it. And hate drives you to action. Being disgusted just le leaves you, it bothers you enough to make you uncomfortable, but not, near enough uncomfort but not nearly uncomfortable to act. So how do we move from just being disgusted about evil to hating evil? Before I address, before I answer that question, I just want to address 
what I think is just the pink elephant in the room, and that is I realize that preaching a, a sermon on here's what love is and opening that sermon with a growing with growing our hatred, hatred seems to be incompatible, right? <laughs> Such a conclusion reminds us of sin's pervasive influence in our lives. Scripture de- redefines love by teaching us that love hates. Biblical love will not support a modern-day anthem of a true friend will support you in anything you want to do. The wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy, Proverbs says. How do we move ourselves from, dis- from being disgusted to hate? We have to discipline ourselves to a daily regrounding of our faith so that we can act accurately discern the line between good and evil. And if you go back to chapter 12, verse 2, what does he say? He says that you will, you know, the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the acceptable will of God. That is what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. Genuine love is discerning. Listen, I raised two girls. Probably failed far more than I succeeded. A thousand events in both of their lives that I wished I could go back and had the wisdom to do differently. But something that I always told my girls, and I think, it, I think it's implicit right here, is this. Love and true love Listen, genuine love will not always be understood as genuine love. I can't tell you how many times I was told, you just don't love me, Daddy. Now, I'm not knocking my girls. They're kids, right? They, that's why they got parents. They don't understand what love is. That's why, I, that, that's why I'm their parents. So I didn't take that personally. You know what I said to them? You're right. Everything that I'm doing to you right now appears to be nothing but pure hatred on my part. But I promise you, it's love. And here's what I'm counting on. 10, 15 years down the road, when you have your kids, you're going to have this moment in, in, in the life of your child, and you're going to say, uh-oh, I'm just like my mom and dad. It's gonna, the light bulb's going to go off, and you're going to say, you know what? They really did love me. They loved me way more than I ever realized. You know, something interesting as we get older, we should really realize if we had loving parents, we should really realize how much our parents really loved us. I mean, the older you get, the, 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 the greater your understanding of their love is. Why? Because now you're walking in their shoes and you're realizing what you, what you once thought was hatred was actually love. So listen, you, you've already got to start with the fact that when you are going after someone's ultimate good, right? You want them to experience uh, God's goodness, it, it can and it will be misconstrued as hatred. Why? Because you hate the evil thing that's destroying them. Because you're discerning. You've got some discernment about yourself. It, com- it compels you to act on the behalf of those who are flirting uh, with or fully involved in foolish and dangerous activities. One effect of genuine love is the hatred of evil. I could give you at least 10 scriptural references this morning, but I'm not. Huh, thank you, right? Aren't you grateful? See, I gave you a gift because I love you this morning. Psalm 97.10 says enough. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Well, do you need more verses? Because we got nine more we could go to that basically say the exact same statement do not be deceived abstaining from evil remember we're talking about hating evil abstaining from evil is not the same as hating evil paul taught the believers in first thessalonians 5 abstain from every form of evil he did teach them that both commands hating it and abstaining from it aid us in our fight against sin in their own unique way abstain listen abstaining from um, abstaining from evil, guess what it does? If it's not 
married with hating evil, it will deteriorate into legalism. And that's what I was getting to earlier when we start talking about, you know, uh, what you watch, what you listen to, all this stuff. And people say, ah, oh, now you're getting into legalism. No, no, listen. The Bible clearly commands us that for the sake of holiness, for the sake of, uh, of, of growing in Christ's likeness, there, there are certain aspects of this world's system that we must abstain from. But we're not abstaining from it because we're trying to get something from God or earn something from God. Why are we abstaining from it? Because we are people that have been overpowered by the grace of God, by the mercies of God. And so we want to abstain from that because it is that evil in and of itself that crucified Christ to the cross. Therefore, the very, his greatest act of mercy and grace that he ever displayed to us happens because of evil. And so why would we want to participate in that? Why would, why would we want to get involved in that? Abhorring or hating fuels abstaining because it's resourced by love. Consider for a moment Roman crucifixion and its brutality. Why did Christ have to be crucified? Could the Lord of glory not devise some other plan of salvation that was less gruesome? I believe the Lord allowed this horrific act to forever remind us of the evilness of evil. It was His love for evil people such as you and I that held Him to the cross. Listen to these words from a very famous hymn. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, long, deep meditations of Christ on the cross will inflame our hearts to hate the evil in our hearts. Satan has done a wonderful job in convincing us that the crucifixion is only needful for examination at Easter. If we are to be obedient to Scripture's command to love, to love as God loves, we must abhor evil because the genuineness of God's love is demonstrated in the hatred of evil. You don't think God hates evil? Look at the cross. He cannot overlook evil. He demonstrates grace towards all unrepentant and repentant sinners. However, he cannot and will not forever be gracious for those who will not repent. His love for holiness drives him to unleash his full hatred, his wrath against the unrepentant. Love which does not hate evil is simply sentimentality. It's just mushiness. God doesn't love us in a mushy way. So listen to me this morning. God is demonstrating His love to you by allowing you to hear this gospel message. And if you refuse His, act, if his advances of grace, if you, if you refuse His portrait of love, if you snub it, if you walk away from it, listen, He is not so loving that one day when you come to the end of your life, He's just going to look at you and say, oh, you know what, I love you too much to send you to hell. He's going to say, no, I love you so much, I am going to send you to hell. Why? Because you have refused His love. And so His love demands that you experience His full wrath. Why? Because if He didn't, His love wouldn't be genuine. His love wouldn't be without hypocrisy. His love wouldn't be sincere. But listen to me this morning. The Lord takes no joy in the death of the wicked. He wants all men to repent. And that's why you're hearing the sermon today, right now. Because He wants you to repent. He wants you to be saved. Christ died on the cross to show us the evilness of evil and to show us His hatred of evil. It was there on Golgotha's hill that Christ destroyed the works of 
of the evil one, right? At the cross, he disarmed the power and the authorities of evil and put them to open shame. Our hatred of evil does not make us narrow-minded. This is, you're going to be accused of this. Oh, you're narrow-minded. It just means that we're walking the narrow way. It doesn't make us judgmental, for we are the living, for we are living uh, the Jesus way by taking the log out of our own eye first before we what? Take the speck out of our brother's eye? Hatred of evil will not make you acceptable to everyone, yet it is the acceptable will of the Lord. Let me be clear that this command to hate evil is not a command to hate evildoers. Paul gives clear instruction as to how we are to act towards those who do evil. Please listen to this. And this, I mean, we're just about to close it out this morning. So please listen to this part. We're not called to hate evildoers. We're called to hate evil. But look at what Paul says in verse 14 of Romans 12. He says, bless those, who bless, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This exhortation is to bless our persecutors in the sense of returning kindness and love to those who mistreat us because of our testimony of the Lord Jesus. Now look, if you're getting persecuted for being a smart aleck, that don't count. If you're getting persecuted for being a jerk, that doesn't count. Some people talk about, well, there's people just persecuted, and they're jerks, right? So that doesn't count. You, you're getting persecuted for walking like Jesus walked as much as you can. What does it mean to bless? It's to speak them good. That's literally the definition, to speak them good. <laughs> what? I'm, here's my question. I wrote down in my notes, why? Why do I got to speak, speak them good when they're doing bad to me, right? How about this verse? Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There it is. Who has blessed us Who's the us? If you were to read chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2 says the us that he blessed walked in darkness, haters of God. That's who, we, that's who the us is. So listen again, why do we bless those who persecute us? Because we who were the enemies of God, while we were yet his enemy, Christ blessed us. And let me say this to you. This word bless is in the uh, present imperative, which simply means be constantly blessing. It's like you don't get to pick and choose when you get to bless. It's like you just got to be blessing people all the time. And let me say one other thing. Blessing people ain't saying have a blessed day. If there's one statement in this world that drives me up the wall, and I have it said to me several times a day, have a blessed day. I just want to scream. I mean, I really do. It drives me nuts. So when he said, bless those who persecute you, speak them good, that's not something you verbally say. One day she's going to get up here and preach with me. We've got a connection. Uh, it's not to speak it, it's to do it. I'm not saying that you can't speak it, because sometimes, you know, it, it is something that needs to be done in words, but it's more than, more than just words. But look down at Romans 12, 17, okay? Still in that same chapter, He's given us some more. He's just painting more of the picture for us. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And what Paul is saying is, look, don't do what is evil, but give thought. That word thought there 
is actually a word that means to premeditate. And listen, Peter uses the same idea in 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, right? So that phrase, give thought, means that we are to premeditate our response of honor. And you think, well, how in the world do you do that? Like, do you wake up in the morning and get a journal out and start premeditating how you're going to respond to somebody that's, that's going to do bad to you or do evil to you? It's, it, it doesn't mean premeditate in that sense. Here's really what it's calling it. Here's the premeditation. Philippians 4.8. This is how you premeditate an honorable response. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. Have you ever considered that your, your, your response often to evil against you? Have you ever considered that? Or have you ever done this? Have you ever responded to an evil situation against you in a way, and after you responded, you said, you know what? That's just not like me to act like that. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. You've been, you've been premeditating that response for a while. It, like, didn't just show up out of nowhere. You just didn't have an, a moment, an epiphany where you're like, oh, I think I'll act this way. No, that has been simmering in the pot for some time, just waiting for the opportune moment to come bursting out and to throw up all over somebody. Just like, has there ever been moments in your life where you have responded appropriately to evil against you, and you were like, well, where did that come from? Because you're like, that ain't typically the way I'd respond to that. Like, it's like Bodie Bauckham says. Bodie Bauckham says, you know, I'm saved, but they, there's some things I hadn't forgot, you know? But you're not responding like that. You're responding really like a saved person. Like, where did that come from? Well, I'm probably going to say it comes from a place that you have probably been operating in Philippians 4.8 and that you have been thinking and meditating. We're back to that again, right? All the way back up to verse 2 where he says, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You've been meditating on God's Word, storing up God's Word, pondering on God's Word. And guess what? You've been abstaining from evil. You, you haven't been being conformed to this world. And guess what happens? You're ready for that moment when evil strikes against you to respond in a premeditated way of honor. So let me give you this last, this last part. I can do this very quickly. Uh, genuine love hates evil, but it holds on to good. It holds on to good. Now, the word for hold on here is a Greek word called kaleo. Kaleo. K-A, I mean K-O-L-L-A-O. Kaleo. It literally means to glue together, to put together. It's where we get our English word collagen. Are y'all familiar with collagen's big now? Like I drink collagen in my coffee every morning. You know, you get it out of the bones of animals. You got it in your body. Um, collagen is a fibrous protein found in bone, skin, tendons, and cartilage. What Paul is calling us to do here then is to glue ourselves to what is good, to connect ourselves to what is good, as inseparable as, inseparable as tendons bind bone, to muscles. When we injure a tendon, disconnecting a bone from a muscle, anybody ever done that? It hurts. It's crippling, right? So also is any rupture to our bond to that which is good. It spiritually cripples us. So what do we need to do? We need to bond ourselves to what is good. How do we do that? Well, let me ask you this. How do you know what's good? 
do you make the call on that? Do you, are, are you the one sitting around and you say, yeah, that's good. No, that's not good. Yeah, that's good. I mean, how do you know what's good and what's not? Well, you got to have a standard, right? I mean, how do you know if something's a pound? Well, it weighs 16 ounces, right? That's how we know it's a pound, 16 ounces. Why? Because we've got a standard of measurement. How do you know how long a mile is? 5,280 feet, right? So how do we know that? Well, we have a standard. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? Well, please, for whatever you do, don't create your own standard because it will be wrong because you'll have very little wrong and a lot to try. And you'll have a standard of right that somebody else will look at and say, that's wrong, and your standard are wrong. And they'll say, oh, no, that's right. You'll have conflicting standards. The Bible is, you know, it is our standard. That's how we discern what the will of God is, what is right, wrong, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's evil, what's righteous. And you can't spend five minutes a day in the Bible and discern what's good and evil, what's righteous and unrighteous. You can't do that and John 3.16 be the only verse in the Bible that you can quote. You can't do that and pray once a week or only at mealtimes. It's just not going to happen. You've got to clean yourself to what is good. And if you find yourself doing wrong more than you're doing good, it's because you have yet to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. You've got to say what Paul said in Romans 7, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And then you've got you to run to Romans 8 and start clinging to what is good. So I want to ask you a question in closing this morning. How can I grow my hatred of evil and yet obey the command to love my neighbor as myself? Meditate on God's mercies. His mercies towards you fuel your obedience to not be conformed to this world and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is the confluence of this activity which enables us to hate evil while seeking to help those who do evil experience God's goodness. You can't go to the abortion clinic and hold up a sign that said God, God hates abortion and those who have abortions. We're called to hate abortion. But we're called to do everything that we possibly can do with the assistance and the aid of the Holy Spirit to help those who are contemplating abortion or those who have had an abortion to experience the goodness of God. And that goes for any other aspect of life. We don't believe in same-sex marriage. But we don't hate those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Genuine love does not endorse evil. It expresses God's goodness by holding fast to what is good. Listen, no matter how great the pressure gets to cave in to being okay with evil and being silent about evil, it's not going to cut it. Hating evil and holding fast to what is good is the life of a living sacrifice. If those, if those, are, if those altar-binding verbs of verse 2 are not lived, then a living sacrifice you cannot be.
These participles will cause you to crawl off the altar. They are too potent and penetrate too deeply to be lived out in the power of the flesh. Christian, there resides within you a power to live this way and attached to this power is an unction, a divine spiritual influence that compels us to walk in this manner. There is no book but the Bible that can transform you into this kind of person. There is no teacher or preacher but the Holy Spirit that can transform you into this kind of person. There is no conference or even um, or any other event that you can attend that can transform you. Only time spent in prayer and meditation. Do not wait on, des on desire to come because it will not. Deep abiding change comes from discipline. And so I'm going to leave you with this verse. Well, let me get to it. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Some of us, we want, the, we want the magic pill. Come on, David. Right? In everything in our life. We, we need a pill to lose weight. We need a pill to, to have better thinking. We, we need a pill for, you know, just give me something. Tell me the shortcut. Don't, you know, I don't want to do a bunch of reading. I don't want to have to read a bunch of books. I don't want to have to do this. I just need you to tell me right now. Where's the Cliff Notes version? You know, where, I mean, get, give it to me as distilled as you possibly can. Why? Because I want it now. I need it instant. It's not going to come that way. No sermon, no preacher, no teacher, no book that you can buy, no conference that you can go to, no event. Nothing is going to, is to get you to where we're talking about going. The only way you're going to get there is through discipline. And, that, and discipline is I do it whether I feel like doing it or not day in and day out, day in and day out, right? What does it mean? Does it mean, I'm, you know, I, I have to get up an hour early than I normally do so I can spend time in Bible study and prayer because I really don't have any other time in my day to fit that in? Then that's what I do. I don't, I, you know, you're not going, when, when the alarm goes off an hour earlier than normal, you're not going to feel like getting up. But if you wait on desire to show up, it's not ever going to show up. Oh, it might, it, randomly it might. But it's not going to on a daily consistent basis, which is what we need in order to live this kind of life. You must be disciplined. And Paul says, what? If you're going to live a life of godliness, discipline is in order. Not emotions. Not motivation. Discipline. Why? Because we're going somewhere. Where are we going to become like Christ? Where are we going? We want to become this person because we want to love other people. Why? Because that kind of genuine love does what? It moves other people towards experiencing the greater goodness of our God. Why? Because you want them to experience the same mercies of God that you've experienced. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in these next moments, our next step of faith is going to be on our knees. Not, not beat down, not condemned this morning, but definitely convicted by our woeful participation in hating evil. Yeah, we, we've been disgusted. Our stomachs have turned flips and and we we just we're just disgusted by what we see, but we're not participating at all in making any kind of difference in any of that. We're not really showing our hatred towards evil, and therefore we're really not loving like we should love, and we're not clinging to what is good, and we're not clinging really to what is good because we're too busy clinging to what is evil. And we find ourselves in this predicament because we haven't done what we 
should be doing in response to the mercies of God, which is not conforming ourselves to the ideologies of this world, but transforming ourselves by our daily disciplined commitment to the renewal of our mind through the reading of your word and through praying and through uh, meditating and through memorization and through uh, uh, accountability with other believers. And so, Father, this morning, only the Holy Spirit can now do what needs to be done. And so we ask that he would work and is already at work supernaturally in the hearts of those here in this room and those that are watching on the other side of the computer screen. Father, do what only you can do through your spirit and do it for the sake of souls. Do it for the, for, uh, for the welfare of Christians who are listening in order that you might gain great glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song this morning.